Chapter Four of With Cortez in Mexico by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Jones, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Four Among the Islands. Now let us go through our calculations again, the captain said when they entered his cabin. How long will you be, captain? the first mate asked. Half an hour standing. Then I will come again, or if you want me before that, send for me. And the first mate went out on deck again, for though well skilled to handle a ship in all weathers, and as brave and hardy a seaman as sailed out of Plymouth, James Standing could neither read nor write, and, though in a rough sort of way, he could reckon the course a ship should lie, and make allowance for leeway and currents and baffling winds, and could bring a ship into any port in England or the Low Countries, he was of no use in a matter of this kind. Pangarvan was a good scholar, and Reuben had taught him what he knew of navigation, and always made him keep a log from the time when he first became a mate, at first comparing their calculations every day, and then but once a week, arguing over the allowances each had made for tide and leeway, and sometimes finding, to his surprise, on arriving in port, that Pengarvan's calculations were even nearer to the truth than his own. This was a great satisfaction to him, for he felt that, if aught should happen to himself when on a voyage, Pengarvan could be trusted to bring the swan home, as safely and surely as he could himself. Roger had, for the last two years, been going through the same schooling, but as yet he was very far from attaining accuracy, being unwilling to make sufficient allowance for the great leeway that a vessel, in those days, made with the wind a beam. Now, Pengarvan, Reuben said in great glee, bring out your log-book. We have not compared notes since we started, for till we expected to reach land there was no occasion to do so, as our general course was clear enough. Now let us see where you put her. And you too, Roger, let us see what hand you have made of it. I went through my calculations yesterday, and I am sure that there is no mistake in the figures. If I am right, this is the island that we see ahead, the one called Simona while that we see dimly away on the port hand is Mariguana. I don't see by this map any land marked that could be that which we see on the starboard hand. Now what do you make of it? I put it more than a degree to the southeast, Captain, and believe that the three islands we see are those marked as the Caicos, the great Caicos in the center, north and east on either hand. And you, Roger, what do you make of it? According to my calculation, father, we ought to be full two hundred miles from land, and heading straight for Abaco, the northernmost of these islands. The captain laughed, and even Pengarvan smiled. I fear, Roger, it would be hardly safe to leave the ship in your hands at present. You are some six hundred miles away from Pengarvan's islands, and but seventy less from mine." Well, Pengarvan, whether you or I be right, we may congratulate ourselves, for we have made a near cast, indeed, 
seeing that it is eight weeks since we left England, and more than six since we sailed out of sight of Madeira, and that we traversed a sea altogether strange to us, and of whose currents we know nothing. We are both right to a day in our reckoning of distance, and neither of us need feel hurt if the other turns out right at finding himself but sixty miles out on a voyage of such length as this. I headed for this point because, as I said, we must steer clear of the great islands, which are, as you know, wholly in the possession of the Spaniards, who have dispossessed the inhabitants and use them as slaves for working the plantations and mines. As you see by the chart, they have no posts in all these islands, running from here northwest nearly up to the mainland, except a small post at San Salvador. Now we will coast up through these islands till we get within sight of Columbus Point at the southerly end of San Salvador. For that was the island, you know, that was first discovered by him in 92. Then we will strike westward to Andros, and after that shape her course due west. This will take us north of the west end of Cuba and well out of sight of land. But we must be careful of our navigation, for, as you see, it is written here, small islands, innumerable, scattered among those marked here, these being the principal. Many of these islands are low and show but little above the water. Sailing is very perilous and not to be attempted at night. You see, in this course we shall have the advantage of being well out of the ordinary line of passage of the Spaniards, who shape their course more to the southward, make Puerto Rico their first landfall, and then have the two great islands, Hispaniola and Cuba, lying straight before them, free, as it seems, by the chart, from any dangers to navigation. Roger, from this evening we will compare our logbooks day by day, so that you may learn where it is that you have gone wrong. But I can guess how it is. The wind is blowing chiefly from the east, and you will never make allowance enough for drift and I have told you over and over again that, with a light wind on our beam, we drive a mile to leeward for every two we go on our course. There are many ships which will drift nigh a mile for every mile they sail in light winds. When the wind is brisk and we are going fast through the water, then we drift but little, not more perhaps than one mile to six or seven. But why is that, father? How is it that a light wind blows us away sideways, and that a strong wind, instead of blowing us more, blows us less? That I cannot tell you, Roger. We must leave those questions for wiser heads to settle. I only know that it is so. Of that there is no doubt at all. But why, I have not the least idea. How does it strike you, Pengarvan? The Cornishman shook his head. I have thought it over, Captain, many times. It seems to me sometimes that I have a sort of notion why it is, but it is not clear even to myself. I could not put it into words. The first mate now looked into the cabin. Here we are, James. Pengarvan puts her here, opposite these three little islands. I put her here, some sixty miles away. It matters not at all that I can see which it is, Standing said. One island is as good as another so that it has got water and fruit. The tubs are getting low, and the men are beginning to need a change of diet. So I hope, Captain, you will lay her to 
at the first we come to, and get what we want, whether it is Spaniard or native we have to fight for it. I hope we shall have to fight neither, standing, but I don't think we are likely to meet with Spaniards, for all the islands in these groups are small ones, and the navigation dangerous. As for the Indians, I fear we may not find them very friendly, seeing that they will, of course, take us for Spaniards, whom they have little reason to love. Still, when they see that our intentions are peaceable, and that we wish only to trade, they may abate their hostility. In three hours they were close to the island that they had first seen, which proved to be much nearer than they had supposed at first sight. It was low and thickly covered with trees, and of only a few miles circumference. There is no chance of finding the natives hostile here, Reuben Hawkshaw said. Their numbers can be but scanty, and the only fear is that they may hide themselves in the woods at our approach, and refuse to have dealing with us. Get the lead ready to sound, James, and put some grease on the bottom, that we may see what kind of holding ground it is. As the sun had risen, the wind had fallen, and the swan was now moving very slowly through the water. They were about a mile from the land when the log was first hove. Eighteen fathoms, Captain, the mate reported, adding when the lead was hauled up, and a sandy bottom. Casting the lead regularly, they sailed on until within little more than a quarter of a mile of the shore, and there dropped anchor in six fathoms of water. I shouldn't like to be caught in a gale here, the captain said, but if it did come on to blow, we could get up our anchor and sail round to the other side of the island, where we should be in shelter. There are some natives, father, Roger, who was watching the shore, exclaimed. They are waving green branches. Wave a white flag, Roger. Fasten anything white to a boat hook and wave it. They may understand that, as the white flag is in use by all nations as a sign of peace, and they may have seen the Spaniards use it. Get one of the boats lowered, James. The long boat will be the best. Let its crew take their arms with them, but lay them under the seats, so as to land in peaceable guise. I myself will go ashore in her, and see what are the intentions of the natives. Get a couple of guns loaded, and if you see they attack us, fire a shot over their heads into the woods. That will be enough to frighten them. However, I think not that we shall have trouble." A couple of boxes had already been got on deck by the captain's orders, and some strings of glass beads, hawk-bells, and other articles of trade taken out. "'You can come with me, Roger,' the captain said, and in a few minutes the boat rowed towards the shore. Eight men sat at the oars, and eight others were bestowed in the bow and stern. She would have carried twice as many, but the captain wished to avoid any show of force. The group of natives had increased— by the time the boat reached the shore, and the captain saw that they consisted of two men who were apparently chiefs, and some thirty of inferior rank. They continued to wave green branches, and their attitude was so peaceful that the captain did not hesitate to leap ashore as soon as the boat touched the strand. "'You follow me, Roger, and you others keep your hands on your arms, ready to use them. But sit quiet.' and do not show your weapons unless there be occasion. The chiefs advanced with a timid air towards the newcomers, and on approaching, saluted in an attitude of deep humility, 
using the Spanish word amigos. Amigos, friends, repeated the captain in a cheerful tone. Roger gazed with intense interest upon these strange beings. They were, in color, but little darker than the Moors who had tried to capture the swan on her last voyage. They were of good height, but of slender figure. Their countenances were soft and almost feminine, with dark, large eyes and mild and gentle expression. They had no hair upon their faces. That on their heads was long and black. Round their heads were light gold bands, from which rose plumes of colored feathers. They were naked above the waist, save that over one shoulder cotton cloths, ornamented with fantastic patterns wrought in bright feathers, were lightly thrown. From the waist they wore cotton petticoats, reaching to the knees. Both had belts decorated by shells, worked into intricate patterns, and from similar belts, crossing the shoulder, hung quivers filled with small arrows. They had necklaces and bracelets of bright beads, of European manufacture, and both carried light spears, their bows hanging from their shoulders. Their followers were similarly dressed, save that the fillets round their heads, instead of being gold, were strips of skin decorated with shells and beads, and the mantles were of plain cotton. The captain took from his pouch two necklaces of large blue beads and presented them to the chiefs, and also gave to each of them a small hatchet. These they received with tokens of gratitude, being specially pleased with the hatchets, which were articles vastly prized by the natives and rarely bestowed upon them by the Spaniards, who were very chary of presenting the natives with anything that could be used as a weapon. The captain then made a sign to the natives to approach, and bestowed a necklace of smaller beads upon each. He next called to the sailors and bade them come ashore, bringing with them only their hangers, for there was no doubt that the natives were friendly. While they were doing so, four of the natives, at the order of their chiefs, brought forward large baskets, beautifully plated and, as Roger judged, made of the tender bark of some tree. The chiefs took these from their attendants and, opening them, placed them before the captain with a gesture of humility. They were filled with fruits, all of which were of kinds such as neither Roger nor his father had seen before. The sailors now brought forward an empty barrel, and the captain signified that they required water. One or two billets of wood were also shown, and the captain signified by action that he wished his men should be allowed to cut wood to carry on board ship. He also pointed to the baskets of fruit, and then showed some more strings of beads and some hawk-bells, intimating his desire to trade. The natives readily comprehended the gestures. Pointing to the keg, they intimated by signs that the ship should be moved round to the other side of the island, and that fruit would be taken to them there. The men would, gladly enough, have wandered at once into the woods to look at the trees and flowers, which differed widely from anything they had ever before seen. But the captain said, "'We shall have time enough for that, men. Let us get off with this fruit. Our comrades on board will be thirsting for their share.' Then we will get the ship round on the other side, and all will have an opportunity to go ashore. As soon as they got on board, a portion of the fruit was set aside for the use of the officers, and the rest divided among the crew. 
Although they were ignorant of the names, the men enjoyed hugely the pineapples, guavas, and custard apples that formed the major portion of the contents of the baskets, and cheerfully set about the work of getting up their anchor and setting the sails. But the wind had now entirely dropped, and the swan scarce moved through the water. So anxious, however, were the men to land that they gladly obeyed the captain's orders to get out all the boats and tow her, although the heat was so great that, at any other time, they would have shrunk from such a labor. As soon as they reached the other side of the island, the anchor was dropped, and, the men on board having already made everything snug, Captain Reuben called those who had been towing out of the boats. "'My lads,' he said, "'I wish to say a few words before you land. In the first place, you cannot all go.' It would never do to leave the ship without sufficient hands on board to fight her, seeing that at any moment a Spaniard may come round one end of the island or the other and fall upon us. Consequently, half must remain on board, and take their turn on shore tomorrow. I wish to give no advantage to any, therefore the boatswain shall put two pieces of folded paper in his hat, one being blank and the other having a cross upon it. If the blank paper is drawn, the starboard watch shall go ashore, and the larboard take their turn tomorrow. If the paper with the cross comes out, it will be the other way. One more matter. I shall expect the discipline on shore to be as good as it has been on board ship. The natives are to be treated well, and all that we get from them shall be by fair barter, and it shall be conducted for the advantage of all. The first mate and boatswain will take ashore some of the goods we have brought for the purpose of trade, and they will buy not only such things as we require for the ship, fruit and vegetables, but whatever the natives may have to sell. All these things will be brought on board, and then those of you who wish for any of these articles, as a token from the first island at which we touched, can take them, making an auction among yourselves the sums to be deducted from your wages. In this way, all will be on a fair footing, and the proceeds of the sale will go into the general fund to be divided at the end of the voyage. Nevertheless, I should advise you not to purchase now, but to leave it until we have finished all our business and are on our homeward way. Then we shall see what we have obtained, and each man can buy according to his liking." i say this because if you get things now they will litter up the ship and will get broken lost or thrown overboard and it were far better that everything remained packed in the hold until we are on the homeward voyage another thing let each man behave himself decently on shore be gentle and kind to the natives who though but heathens are a harmless people and friendly let there be no quarrels or disputes and above all let none meddle with the women. I warn you that any breach of these orders will be most severely punished, and that, moreover, anyone who does so offend will never have leave to go ashore again, not if we cruise for ten years among these islands. The second mate and Roger remained on board with the starboard watch, the drawing giving the advantage to the others, and these, with the captain and first mate, were soon rowing towards the shore. Those on board, although disappointed that fate had decided against them, had their share of amusement, for a good many canoes afterwards came off to them, 
filled with goods for barter, and as the captain, before leaving, had told the second mate that he could buy and sell with those who came out, a brisk trade was soon established. They had no fear of treachery from the natives, who were in such dread of the white men that they would not venture to lift a hand against them, however great the odds might be, and they were, therefore, allowed to come on board and mix freely with the sailors. The contents of the canoes, chiefly fruits and vegetables, were spread out on the deck, and the mate and Roger bargained with them, giving them little looking-glasses and strings of beads in exchange for their wares. "'They are mighty reasonable in their demands,' Roger said to Pengarvan. "'It seems almost a shame to take these great baskets of fruit and vegetables in return for such trifles.' "'They are not trifles to them,' the mate replied, "'unfair in the exchange. "'These things are to them what gold and jewels are to us. "'We would give gladly a score of boatloads of vegetables "'for a diamond the size of a pea, "'and these glass beads are as valuable in their eyes "'as diamonds are in ours.' "'After buying up the main stock, "'they trafficked with the natives "'for the little ornaments they wore,' necklaces and bracelets cunningly worked with bright shells and seeds and weapons of curiously carved wood at nightfall the other boats returned laden down with fruit and vegetables we must buy no more of these commodities at present captain reuben said when he saw what had been purchased on board we have got enough to last us as long as they will keep eat we never so heartily and indeed the next day a number of the crew were ill from the quantity of fruit that they consumed. This, however, soon passed off, and the change of diet did great good. The scurvy disappeared, and in a short time all, even those who had suffered most, were again fit for duty. The following morning Roger and Pengarvan went ashore with the starboard watch. The captain again accompanied them, and for hours they rambled about the island, wondering at the strange trees and foliage and the bright flowers and filled especially with admiration at the tiny birds with feathers like jewels that flitted about among the flowers, and concerning which there was much dispute among the men, some asserting that they were a sort of great bee, while others maintained that they were birds. So quickly did they fly that the men, although they tried hard, failed to catch any of them. But the dispute as to their nature was solved by the discovery that one of the chiefs had a robe fringed with the skins of these little creatures, and examining these they saw, surely enough, that they were birds, with feathers glistening in the sun like jewels of many colors. Captain Reuben persuaded the chief to cut off the fringe and sell it to him, giving in exchange for it the high price of four copper rings and a tiny looking-glass. In the afternoon the crew set to work to re-water the ship, and by nightfall all the casks were filled up, and the vessel was ready to proceed again on her way. The next morning sails were hoisted, and the anchor weighed. The natives came out in great numbers in their canoes, and surrounded the swan as she glided away from her anchorage, waving their hands and raising cries of farewell evidently greatly satisfied at the treatment they had received at the hands of their white visitors. For a fortnight the swan cruised from island to island, but beyond giving the crew a run ashore at each, 
and so building up their strength and getting them in fighting trim, should there be occasion to call upon them for action, little advantage was obtained from these visits. Fruit and vegetables were obtainable in abundance, but beyond these, and little trinkets and feathers, there was no trade to be done. It is clear, Captain Reuben said, as he and his officers were gathered in the cabin, that there is neither gain nor advantage to be obtained from trade here. The natives have doubtless sufficient for their wants, which are of the simplest, but of wealth such as we prize in England, there is none to be had. It is different with the Spaniards. They make slaves of these poor creatures, and force them to till their plantations, to raise crops for them, and to work mines. But we, who cannot do these things, can get nothing from a longer stay in these coasts. We touched here chiefly to get water and fruit, to keep us all in health, and in that we have abundantly succeeded. We had best now shape our course westward, and try to find this new land, rich in gold, of which my friend the Spanish captain learned by report from the natives. So far we have fallen in with no Spaniards, but we may do so at any time, and although I have no fear of beating off any that might meddle with us, it would do us great harm did the news spread that a strange ship was in these waters, for they would assuredly send out expeditions in search of us from all their ports as soon as the news reached them. The others quite agreed with Captain Reuben's views, and the next morning the ship's head was pointed west. Two days later, when passing an island they saw, on opening a headland, a port with many houses, and a Spanish flag flying from a mast on shore. Two large Spanish vessels were lying there. They were apparently on the point of sailing, for the sails were already dropped. An exclamation of surprise broke from all on the deck of the swan, and the men ran to the braces and sheets, in order to trim the sails. "'Steady, men!' Captain Reuben shouted. "'Touch not sheet or tack. We must sail past, as if bent on our own business. If we change our course now, they will suspect that something is wrong. Pengarvan, do you get out the Spanish flag from the locker, and run it up to the peak?' This was done, though it was easy to see, by the looks the crew cast towards the strange craft, that they would gladly go in and fight them. "'Another time, lads,' Captain Reuben said cheerfully, as he saw their mood. "'I doubt not we shall have enough fighting to satisfy you before we have done. But our object here is to trade and get rich. If thrashing the dons comes in the way of business, we shall do it contentedly.' but there is no occasion for us to put ourselves out of the way to meet them. Supposing we were to go in and sink those two ships, as I doubt not we are men enough to do, if we were to try it, they would see it all from the shore, and no sooner did we set sail again than boats would carry the news to every Spanish port in these quarters, and we should have a score of ships in pursuit of us in no time." and whatever came of it, that would interfere with the hopes of gain with which we have sailed to these seas. This port must be a newly formed one, he went on, turning to Roger, for there is no Spanish station marked hereabout in my chart. The course which the swan was taking 
would have carried her half a mile to seaward of the two Spanish vessels, but she now edged a point or two farther out. Doubtless the Spaniards were surprised at seeing that the vessel, instead of entering the port, continued her course, and it may be that they very soon discovered such points in her hull and rigging as set them wondering what she could be. Presently a gun was fired from one of the ships, as a signal, doubtless, for her to heave to. The swan paid no attention to the command, but kept on her course. In two minutes there was another flash and a puff of white smoke from the Spaniard, and a shot skipped across the water in front of the swan. A growl of anger broke from her crew. "'Put up the helm,' Captain Reuben ordered, and the vessel, which was running before the wind, came up till her head pointed straight to sea. Although the Spanish ships were still three-quarters of a mile away, the bustle was at once observable on their decks. Men clustered at the bows, and could be seen at work there. "'They are getting up the anchors,' Pengarvan said, as he watched them, shading his eyes with his hands. Three or four minutes later the sails were sheeted home, and the Spaniard began to move through the water, having set sail as soon as the anchors were tripped. No sooner were they under way, and the crews at their quarters, than they began to discharge their bow guns after the swan. "'Shall we answer them, Captain?' James Standing asked. "'We can bring a couple of guns aft and fire over the rail.' "'By no means,' Captain Reuben replied. "'At present they know nothing about us, and though they may guess that we are not licensed traders, with due authority to trade among the islands, I do not suppose they suspect for a moment that we are foreigners, but deem us a private venture from one of their own ports. No Spanish trader would dare to fire on their own flag, and, as long as we do not reply, they will suppose that we are only trying to escape the payment of some heavy fine, or perhaps forfeiture, for breach of their regulations. No, they can fire away. They are not likely to hurt us. They are fully a mile behind us, and we shall soon leave them. But in this respect the captain was mistaken. The Spaniards were both fast vessels, and although the swan kept her distance, those on board presently saw that she gained nothing. The shot continued to fall around them, but the Spaniards worked their guns slowly. The pieces on their forecastles were light ones, and though two or three shot passed through the sails of the swan, they did but little damage. "'As long as they don't knock away a spar, we will hold on,' Captain Reuben said. "'If they do, we will turn and fight them. But the wind is dropping a little, and I think that, if anything, we are gaining upon them now.' By the afternoon the swan was fully two miles ahead, and the Spaniards had discontinued firing. The swan was heading now to pass an island which had, for some hours, been visible ahead. Presently the Spaniards again began firing, although their shot fell in the water far astern of the swan. "'What are the lubbers up to now?' James Standing said. "'They cannot think they are going to frighten us into stopping, now that we have fairly got away from them.' Captain Reuben was anxiously gazing at the island ahead. They had laid their course to pass it to windward, as they sailed better, close-hauled, than did the Spaniard, who had not only fallen behind, but had lagged to leeward nigh half a mile. "'They must be firing as a signal,' he said. 
there may either be a spanish port in the island or they may know that there are some of their ships lying there though i can see no signs either of a port or ships it would matter little if we could captain pengarvan said for any ships along that shore would be to leeward of us and we should pass the end of the island long before they could beat up there but it would be awkward if there happened to be a port with two or three of their ships just beyond that point we should be caught between two fires then and have to fight the lot of them the captain nodded you are right pengarvan we should be in a fix then and four spaniards at once is more than we bargained for they were now within two miles of the point towards which they were steering and towards which the eyes of the two officers on the poop were directed five minutes later an exclamation broke from them simultaneously as the sails of a lofty ship made their appearance over the extremity of the point and a minute later a great hull came into sight helm to larboard captain reuben ordered sharply we must run down the island we can never weather that fellow that has just appeared ah there are two others coming out we are in a hornet's nest the sails were squared off and the swan was soon running before the wind almost parallel with the coast but edging in a little to keep her farther from the vessels that had first chased them these had also changed their course and their position to leeward now gave them an advantage ere long the swan was almost abreast her late pursuers who were about a mile and a quarter to seaward while the other three spanish ships with all sails set were a mile and a half astern but a good deal nearer in shore the sun will be down in another five minutes captain reuben said and in half an hour it will be dark the spaniards can run quite as fast as we can a bit faster i think but we can beat them close hauled the wind is falling lighter and lighter if it was not for that we would haul our wind and be off on the other tack and throw all of them out but it will be a dead calm before long and they will be either lowering all their boats to attack us or towing their ships up to us if we were close under the land they might miss us but they will be able to make us out here at any rate we must hold on as we are until the wind drops altogether after sunset the breeze died away rapidly and by the time night had fully set in the sails dropped motionless and the swan ceased to move through the water the captain at once ordered all the boats to be lowered and the men swarmed into them double banking the oars hawsers were handed into them and the vessel's head swept round in the direction from which she had come but somewhat farther seaward now lads the captain said pull with a will there will be a good supper and an allowance of strong ale when you come on board after rowing for half an hour the captain ordered them to cease and to keep silence listening attentively he could hear in the still night air the sound of oars but whether the boats were towing the ships or rowing independently he could not tell again the men set to work i hope they are towing he said to the first mate they would have no chance whatever of catching us for our strong crew can take a vessel like the swan through the water at twice the rate 
they could row their big ships. I can't see the fellows in shore, can you? No, Captain, they are hid in the shadow of the land. I can make out the others, but they are a long way farther off than when we started. I expect we shall have the boats after us standing. Both lots can make us out and can see that we are gaining on them. Ah, I felt a breath of wind. I did not expect it for an hour or two yet, but if the breeze springs up, we shall soon run away from them. Stopping and listening again, they could hear the sound of oars from two directions. They are coming, the captain said. The beat is quicker than it would be if they were towing. Besides, it is a great deal more distinct than it was. I don't think they are more than a mile behind us. Ah, there is the wind again. There was a deep flapping sound and a rattling of blocks as the sails bellied out for a moment and then fell against the masts again. Captain Reuben went to the forecastle. Keep it up, lads. You won't have much longer to row, for the wind is coming. The Spaniards are after us, but they won't be up for a quarter of an hour, and I hope we shall get it before that. Remember, every yard we can keep away from them is of importance. Put your backs to it, lads. The swan carried four boats, and, strongly manned, as these were, she was gliding through the water at a fair rate. It was five minutes before another breath of wind came, but this lasted three or four minutes and greatly relieved the strain from the hawsers. She is going through the water now, the captain said. They cannot be gaining very much upon us at present. Confound it, he added. A minute later, there is an end of it again. The boats were now but a half a mile away, and the voices of the officers, urging the rowers to exert themselves, could be plainly heard. On the swan, the officers were all gazing in the direction from which the wind was to come. The yards were all braced sharply aft. Presently there was an exclamation of relief as they felt the wind in their faces, and the vessel heeled a little over. The boats behind were but a quarter of a mile away now, while those from the vessels in shore were perhaps twice that distance. "'If this is the true breeze, we are safe,' the captain said. "'If not, we shall have to fight for it.' The men had already, without orders, cast loose the guns and armed themselves with pike and cutlass. "'Now listen, lads,' the captain said, as he went forward to the poop rail. "'If these fellows come up and try to board us, let no man utter a word.' fight like bulldogs, and as silently. We shall beat them off, never fear. No doubt they believe that we are their countrymen who have broken their trading regulations and are afraid of being overhauled. But if there is a word spoken, they will know that we are foreigners, and we shall be chased wherever we go. Then he went to the forecastle and bade all the men in the boats cast off the hawsers and come on board. They were, indeed, no longer of any use, as the vessel was going through the water almost as fast as they could row ahead of her. As they gained the deck, he repeated the orders he had given, that strict silence should be observed, in case the Spaniards came alongside. Everything now depended on continuance of breeze, and those on board the boats saw that the vessel was now holding her own with them. Orders to throw the ship up into the wind and heave to were shouted and as no attention was paid to these 
several musket shots were fired at her but the wind held and faster and faster the swan made her way through the water at last the boats fell behind and were lost to sight we are safe now reuben said exultantly we are to windward of them all and shall have them well out of sight before morning when day broke indeed the topsails of three of the spanish ships could be seen on the horizon but in two or three hours these sank out of sight and the swan was headed on her course west End of chapter 4